Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to also check out our newly released podcast entitled By Study and by Faith, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Visit speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more details. It seems most appropriate that we should not pass this day without recognizing the remarkable gift given to us some 56 years ago today. It was on that day that Allied forces, some 175,000 strong, fought their way ashore in Normandy to begin the final phase of the worst worldwide conflict in recorded history. That generation of young men, born and living during the Great Depression, gave of themselves in a way that we almost seem to have forgotten. These soldiers portrayed a selflessness so dramatic and so powerful that author Tom Brokaw has represented them as the greatest generation in his biographical account of their lives. He wrote, They left their ranches in Sully County, South Dakota, their jobs on the main street of America. They gave up their place on the assembly lines in Detroit and in the ranks of Wall Street. They quit school or went from cap and gown directly into uniform, unquote. Indeed, as the noted biographer, historian Stephen Ambrose wrote concerning these men who offered so very much, none of them wanted to be part of another war. They wanted to be throwing baseballs, not hand grenades, shooting twenty twos at rabbits, not M1s at other young men. But when the test came, when freedom had to be fought for or abandoned, they fought. They were the soldiers of democracy. They were the men of D-Day, and to them we owe our freedom." Unquote. And so we pause today to honor these of another generation who gave of their service and even their lives that we might have our generation and be privileged to worship God in deed as well as in heart. That great war broke upon the world as the result of men's propensity for lust and greed and power and absolute disregard for the lives and happiness of others. Elder Eugene Hansen of the Seventy noted, from the beginning of recorded history, mankind has constantly been searching for happiness. I believe it's fair to say that most of us are influenced greatly in our daily lives by what we perceive will result in happiness or joy for ourselves as well as for others." Unquote. And the Prophet Joseph Smith stated, Happiness is the design and object of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God." Unquote. 
This seems to be such a simple recipe, yet men and women, young and old, in and out of the gospel kingdom, appear to devote much of their time and energy toward obtaining this goal, seeking, always seeking, and seemingly never to come to the point of finding the grail of their quest. As I have considered the paths that so many thought would bring them to happiness, I have come to realize that many, if not most, have simply been pursuing the wrong thing. Often, the quest has been a relentless search, not for happiness as they intend, but for a lesser state, even that of pleasure. For happiness is near unto joy and peace and is often far from pleasure. Though elements of pleasure may be in and are often included as important components of these two experiences, both pleasure and happiness, they are neither synonyms nor are they essential parts of the other. I am reminded of the experience of a young friend he played a major role on his high school basketball team, a team that after a long season won the state basketball championship. After the celebrating, after the congratulations, he lay talking in the quiet of the night in his parents' room, and he said, you know, it just doesn't get much better than this. To which his wise father replied, that is not true. Just wait until you have the opportunity to serve a mission. Now recently returned from two years of service in the mission field, he understands what his father meant. He has been able to separate the pleasure of winning an important athletic event from the happiness that attends significant service in the Lord's kingdom. Both events were worthwhile, and justified the use of his time and his energy. Both required skill and diligence, commitment and personal sacrifice. But the final result of one was mostly pleasure, and the other was happiness. Unfortunately, even knowing that these two are not equivalent outcomes of our time or effort, we sometimes, if not consciously, at least subconsciously, assume that happiness can be the result of increasing pleasure. Or we may assume and therefore act as if there were some form of progression that leads from pleasure to more pleasure, to even greater pleasure, with the final outcome ultimately being happiness. This is not the path described by the prophet Joseph Smith. In a small book entitled Tuesdays with Maury, the author, Mitch Album, recounts his experiences as he visited with a former college professor, Maury Schwartz, who was dying from ALS, more frequently called Lou Gehrig's disease. The book recounts a series of Tuesday visits as Maury learned to deal with a disease that slowly but surely leads from increasing incapacitation to the death of the patient. Maury reminded his friend, So many people walk around with a meaningless life, 
they seem half asleep. Even when they're busy doing things they think are important. This is because they're chasing the wrong thing. The way to get meaning into your life is to devote yourself to loving others, to serve your community, and to devote yourself to creating something that gives purpose and meaning. Surely, the enjoyment of pleasure may be the result of many worthwhile activities or events in our lives, such as a good or even a great movie. Perhaps you've been privileged to see the current presentation at the Legacy Theater entitled The Testament of One Fold and One Shepherd. Or, per, or perhaps, surely pleasure comes from a kindly remark given by a respected acquaintance. It may be found in a particularly enjoyable food or from an unexpected good grade on an examination a swim in the ocean, or a carefully sought-for possession. Such things, and hundreds more, are seemingly in source of endless pleasures. But these exciting experiences, pleasures and possessions, are not the basis of true happiness. An interesting philosophy regarding the things we possess was given to Mitch Albom by his friend Maury. Quote, We've got a form of brainwashing going on in our country. Do you know how they brainwash people? They repeat something over and over. And that's what we do in this country. Owning things is good. More money is good. More property is good. More commercialism is good. More is good. We repeat it over and over, and we have it repeated to us until nobody even bothers to think otherwise. The average person is so fogged up by all of this, he has no perspective in what is really important anymore." Unquote. The reality of the loss of this perspective was illustrated by a statement of the former baseball great Dale Murphy who is currently president of the Massachusetts-Boston Mission. President Murphy made a similar observation regarding possessions when he talked about highly paid athletes who have difficulty dealing with life off of the playing field. Makes you sad. I see people looking for something. I saw people who weren't happy. Money isn't a determining factor." Unquote. There seems to be the illusion and even the great anticipation that if we could somehow fill our lives with sufficient of pleasure, we would be happy. Not that pleasure is either wrong or undesirable, but the risk, of course, is that it may be found in a hundred enticing forms, always ready to titillate the senses, and pleasure seems so often ready and anxious to please that we may even discontinue the quest for happiness and simply settle for this self-indulgent imitation. President David O. McKay was fond of quoting the poet William George Jordan, who wrote, Happiness does not always require success, property, or attainment. It is often the joy of hopeful struggle, consecration of purpose, 
and energy to some good use, real happiness ever has its root in unselfishness, its blossom in love of some kind. One of the seeming paradoxes of life is that it is possible to be happy, truly happy in the midst of significant trial, not happy because of the circumstances of the trial, for no one wants such things as financial loss or injury or the low score in a game or perhaps rejection. Some of you may have had such an experience as offering to take someone's hand and she, to your sorrow, tells you that, alas, it is given to another. The grade curve may have been lower than you expected or disappointment in simply a hundred ways. Just any time you seem to have a flat tire on the road to success. Such trials need not and indeed should not take away from happiness. It is as much a mistake to assume that difficulties destroy happiness as it is to assume that pleasures bring happiness. This is one of the great messages repeatedly taught in the scriptures, and it is in this context that I would like to share several illustrations. Consider, if you will, the experience of Helaman and his 2,000 stripling warriors. Thrown into the apex of battle, each of them suffered wounds such that 200 of them be fainted because of the loss of blood. Surely not a condition or a situation conducive to pleasure. But Helaman records, And to our great joy and also the joy of the whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish, and they had fought as if with the strength of God. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength and with such mighty power. We are also taught this lesson by Job, who, having lost his wealth, his children, his health, and his friends, said, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Almighty. And Job concludes with one of the great testimonies of all time, when in the midst of his affliction he added, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. A latter-day evidence of this principle is provided from several well-known experiences. President John Taylor stated that the prophet Joseph Smith, at the time that he prepared to leave for Carthage, knowing full well the implications of his journey, wrote the following, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am as calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. Such peace of soul is true happiness. It is an experience and an expression of the inner assurance that our actions and our desires are acceptable to the Lord. This peace is an expression of the promise given to the, by the Lord to the prophet Joseph at a time that he was in a most difficult circumstance, and perhaps significantly at an earlier imprisonment 
at a place called Liberty, Missouri. In section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants we read, Let thy bowels also be full of charity toward all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. Not only in times of ultimate trial, but in our day-to-day activities, of what value is the peace of good conscience toward God? It would seem that the value of this happiness is truly more precious than rubies. The idea that both peace and happiness can be found in times of significant trial is wonderfully illustrated by the experience of Francis Webster, who journeyed west with the Martin Handcart Company. Most of you know the story, how, having departed from winter quarters late in the season and because of significant delays, the company was caught in early winter snows on the high plains of Wyoming. Some years later, members of a Sunday school class were openly critical of the church and its leaders for agreeing to allow the Martin and Willie Handcart companies to travel under such circumstances. William R. Palmer, who was in that Sunday school class, recorded the events as follows. One old man in the corner, Francis Webster, sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who heard him will ever forget. His face was white with emotion, yet he spoke calmly, deliberately, but with great earnestness. He said in substance, I ask you to stop this criticism. You're discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts mean nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes, but I was in that company, and my wife was in it. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. Yet every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. Was I sorry that I came, chose to come by handcart? No, neither then nor any time since. The price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay, and I am thankful that I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company. Some understanding of this seeming paradox, that is, that tribulation can bring happiness, is given through the writings of Jacob and in the words of Nephi found in 2 Nephi. Some 30 years after Nephi, some 30 years after leaving Jerusalem, Nephi recorded, and it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness, unquote. While we read his brother Jacob's account, written but a few years later as follows. The time passed away with us, and also our lives passed away, like as it were unto us a dream. We being a lonesome and a solemn people, wanderers, cast out from Jerusalem, born in tribulation, in a wilderness, 
and hated of our brethren. Does this sound like they had found happiness? It is important to note that in the midst of these trials, as noted by Jacob, they were living after the manner of happiness, as Nephi had recorded. It appears that Jacob may have been recounting the conditions of the people. There surely were not many pleasures, while his brother simply recorded the quality of their lives. Further understanding of these seeming contradictions is given by Alma to his son Coriantin when he said, Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. Unquote. Thus we see that even though the way was hard and lonely, difficult and trying, the people of Nephi were happy because they lived according to the principles of righteousness. It is of interest that one of the terms used to describe our father's plan for the exaltation of his children is the plan of happiness. This process leading to happiness is recorded by a much younger Nephi as he wrote the history of his people following the visit of the Savior among them. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God." Unquote. No happier people? Yet interestingly, none of them had seen an airplane, used a computer, been to a movie, owned a sports car, played professional ball, tasted chocolate, had a mobile phone, or a thousand other things which we so often confuse for the source of happiness in our lives. In spite of such obvious limitations to their pleasures, Nephi records with his people and rejoices with them as being so happy that no people ever to live were happier. It is clear from the examples given that vicissitudes of mortality, the limitations and sorrows and frustrations and the trials of our lives are often given so that we can actually find happiness. Even though the circumstances were very different for the early saints who were living in Missouri, the principle is true for us today wherein the Lord said, quote, Therefore they, meaning the saints, must be chastened and tried even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. For after much tribulation cometh the blessing." Unquote. It is also apparent that happiness does not necessarily result from personal independence, that is, the ability to not only choose one's path, but to do one's thing, whereby we are able to always satisfy personal preference, interest, and desire. Heaven, which is a place of continual happiness, is such because of personal obedience to eternal laws and principles that, when followed, lead to this end. This is also true in mortality, where obedience to eternal laws and acceptance of true principles are the basis for all blessings. 
the consequence of wise use of our independence and the result of our having learned to bridle our interests and to channel our desires is to have these desires become a continual source of righteousness and blessings in our lives. Speaking of the necessity for the control of our desires and independence, C.S. Lewis wrote, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions, to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do, unquote. When considering the importance of our willingness to modify our independence to create happiness in our lives, Lewis used the imagery of remodeling a house. Quote, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a few a new wing here, putting on a, an extra tower or floor, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Unquote. Yes, the Savior is willing to make of each of us a mansion, but this he will not do without our permission. Given that Joseph Smith considered happiness to be both the object and the design or purpose of our existence, how is it that we so frequently fail to recognize the elements of true happiness in our lives? Lehi that great patriarch of the Nephite people provides for us an understanding of the nature of happiness, its source and its cause. In the second chapter of Nephi, uh, Lehi, while teaching his son Jacob the necessity for opposition in our lives, said, If ye shall say there is no sin, ye shall also say there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. It is clear, then, that happiness comes into our lives not through pleasure, but through righteousness. It is obvious why it was possible for Alma to say to Corianton, wickedness never was happiness. Happiness exists in being freed from wickedness. Indeed, if we were to accept the concept that there is no wrong, we deny not only selves, but perhaps others, the opportunity for the opposite, that is righteousness, and therefore happiness. Because we live in a 
limited world, limited both perspective by means of perspective and opportunity because of the fall. All except the Savior himself have been wicked, partakers of wickedness, which is in its broadest sense is simply a violation of the law of righteousness. And as such, we have removed ourselves from a state of true happiness. Such removal is a just outcome of the demand of eternal law. That is, if we violate an eternal principle or law, we become unworthy to live in a state of pure happiness. It is therefore apparent that without the atonement of the Savior, every mortal being would find themselves both in a state of unrighteousness and unhappiness. The work of Jesus Christ to answer the demand of justice in our behalf is the great message of Amulek in the Book of Mormon. He says, And behold, this is the whole meaning of the law, every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal, and thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name, this being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto men, that they may have faith unto repentance, and thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircle them in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demand of justice. Therefore, only unto him that has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of happiness." Unquote. Payment for a broken law demands sacrifice. The sacrifice made by God was the atonement and is broad enough to cover all of our sins, but also requires a sacrifice on our part. This is illustrated beautifully by the words of Lamoni's father, Lamoni's father when he prayed, I will give away all of my sins to know thee, unquote. This is indeed the cost of happiness and is the sacrifice which must be made by all humankind to give away all of their sins. The atonement of Christ does not satisfy the demands of justice on a piecemeal, sin-by-sin sin basis, but requires that we become new creatures, born again, that we, quote, lay aside every sin which doth bind you down unto destruction, unquote. It is apparent that to the repentant, the law of justice is a positive aspect of the gospel. It is because of this arrangement that we can have hope for happiness and for freedom from our own sins and acts against the law. It is only the wicked and the unrepentant who fear justice and look for mercy without price. The law of justice brings opportunity for obedience to God's laws and ultimate joy. The corollary is that disobedience brings unhappiness. We learn from the scriptures that the law of justice is not optional and must be accounted for in our lives. There seems to be only two ways to satisfy justice. Either must we must keep the law perfectly, that is, do no sin, or we must pay the penalty for the broken law. Significantly, the Savior did both 
In him there was no sin, and yet through him the price demanded by justice for the sins of all mankind was paid. The prophet Alma taught, The Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of the people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. Unquote. This divine act, the atonement, is available to any and to all, all of those who are absolutely submissive to the will of our Father in heaven. We come to know of happiness because of the atonement. And because of the atonement of Christ, we become free from worldliness and therefore able to enter a state of happiness where the vicissitudes of life are not only endured, but endured well. This demands not just some sacrifice, but a total sacrifice on our part. The sacrifice of Christ was complete, ultimate, and infinite. Our sacrifice must likewise be complete. It is that we offer a sacrifice unto the Lord in righteousness, even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Elder James E. Talmadge wrote, Happiness leaves no bad aftertaste. It is followed by no depressing reaction. It calls for no repentance, brings no regret, entails no remorse. Pleasures too often make necessary repentance and contrition and suffering, and if indulged in to the extreme, bring degradation and destruction. In reflecting on the meaning of happiness in my own life, I have come to equate that feeling with peace, not just calm or freedom from conflict or quiet, but true peace, the kind that the Savior promised when he told his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Of all people in the world, we have reason to be the most happy and to have the greatest measure of peace in our lives because of the hope that is within us. We know the Lord, and we understand his example, an example of happiness, not steeped in pleasure, for as noted by Isaiah, he was, quote, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, unquote, but a happiness born of our understanding that in the midst of joy or trial, he is the way, the truth, and the life. It is possible because of him to have peace deep within our souls when all about there is confusion and tumult and temptation. It is possible because of him to be happy, truly happy. I close in the words of the Savior from the Doctrine and Covenants, quote, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Unquote. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage by study and by faith. Come follow me the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information.
You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.